0: This is 88.7 WHCL-FM. Welcome to Dodo History, and I am your host, Mian. Today's topic will be Helen Keller. Keller is well known as a woman who overcame immense odds being both blind and deaf um, as a young girl, or as a toddler basically, but as with many figures of history, she's been sort of whitewashed, and I think being a productive member of society when you've been rendered deaf and blind as an infant, an infant is already admirable, and that's about all I knew about Helen. Um, I think I saw like the really famous movie about her called I think it's called like the miracle worker or something um and that scene where Anne Sullivan comes and like she touches the water and then she's like oh my god I know that stuff like things have names now and it's like this great moment and then it just kind of (laughs) that's the most memorable part of it and it's kind of like the only thing that I think people know about her is that she was deaf and blind and then she just like lived out her years in that way and then she died at like an old age but she was so much more than that like she was not just a passive person that just kind of like overcame her deafness and blindness she was actually um a very like she she changed society she did, she wasn't just a part a productive part of it and so um yeah so she was a courageous and she was an activist that had really pretty I think even today they'd be considered radically progressive ideas but yeah first to sketch out her life and times so Helen Adams Keller was born in Tuscumbia, Alabama on June twenty seventh, 1880, which was a lot earlier than I had thought because I remember seeing a video of her, like footage of her, so I thought she was more 1900s, but she, yeah, she was actually born in 1880, and she came from a wealthy plantation family that had been established in the area for four generations her father arthur keller was a former confederate army captain and publisher of a conservative newspaper her mother kate keller was the descendant of john adams which is a fun fact and was also the daughter of a confederate general so yeah she was born into like this sort of privileged southern aristocracy family Um, and at only 19 months though she contracted an illness which was probably scarlet fever which she survived but it left her deaf and blind so she was only around a year and a half at this point so you know just like I don't think I even have memories from a year and a, a year and a half years old so very early on and the next five years or so was really a struggle she called in her memoir it was just sort of like this mist that or fog that she was in all the time and Helen had around 60 or so hand signs that she, or gesticulations, that she used to communicate with her family, and apparently had some communication with the cook's daughter, who was around the same age, and she could tell her family members apart by their footsteps, which I read that and I was like, hey, I can do that too, like, I feel like that's not because you're deaf or blind, but anyways, um, she also really struggled, she had a lot of temper tantrums, she was uncontrollable, and she would just scream and bite and scratch the people around her, and a lot of people recommended that her family send her to an insane asylum, but her family decided not to, and they were t- tried to find her the help she needed, and so at six years old, Alexander Graham Bell, who's the famous guy that we all know, um, that's, it is him, um, examined her and recommended that uh, 20-year-old Ann Sullivan, who worked for the Perkins School for the Blind, and that's, so that school was actually um, Alexander Graham Bell's son-in-law was the director of that school, so, yeah, that was how they were tied in, and her mother contacted the school, and Anne Sullivan came, and Anne is without a doubt the person who had the biggest impact on Helen's life, not only as a mentor who helped her overcome her disabilities, but who also supported her as a friend until her own death, Anne's, Anne's death, and, um, and herself was visually impaired actually and may I mention again only 20 years old like that sophomore or junior year of college that's like basically my age to be taking care of a deaf and blind child that throws temper tantrums that no doctor has been able to help so far so this is like brave of her I think to even take on this project. And so Anne arrived on March fifth, eighteen eighty-seven, and she brought a doll for Helen, and she tried to spell the word the word for doll, but Helen didn't understand. They have this moment they have this in the movie also, The Miracle Worker, I remember that. Um, and then when she tried to spell the word for mug into Helen's hand, Helen smashed the mug. So I mean, imagine living in this fog for five years, in your childhood, formative childhood years as well where all you have ever known is darkness and silence like that's been your entire existence you only know about the outside world through touch and Helen didn't know that things had names and that people use these things called words to communicate so this went on for a month um between back and forth between Han and Ellen and Helen would copy and and like Helen was really just because she didn't couldn't even like see what societal norms were so i think in the movie it shows how like she doesn't want to eat off plates like she's just very wild and a savage child and um helen would sort of sometimes copy Anne's hand signals that she pressed into her hand but she didn't really know what she was doing and then the famous day um one day Anne was as usual trying to teach her words and there was a pump nearby so she ran the water over helen's hand and made the sign for water w-a-t-e-r on helen's hand and something in her just clicked at that moment she remembered water vaguely from before she was deaf and blind which is really remarkable and she had finally grasped that each thing had a name and that was how people communicated and then she demanded that and teach her like the word for everything else and she tired her out and she was very smart she quickly learned how to communicate and so the next year at seven years old she attended the Perkins Institute where Anne came from. And this is where she learned Braille, which you guys might know is sort of like the bumpy stuff that you can you can touch and then you read. Um and I remember learning somewhere that she read so much in Braille that the skin would peel away and like her fingers would almost bleed. Um so she was just like a very curious and voracious learner. At around ten years old, she had began begun to speak. And this was really a difficult skill for her, obviously, because she had never really, like, she couldn't remember ever hearing a person's voice, um, nor could she see the sounds, how a person formulated their mouth and stuff like that. Just, like, sound was really not part of her world but actually so there's um cases where they were saying that she could actually enjoy music by vibrations through her body and she would like rest her hand on the table and be able to feel the vibrations of the music nearby which i think is really cool and uh yeah and then in uh, eighteen ninety four, Anne and Helen went then to the Horace Humason School for the Deaf, and this is where she learned how to like quote unquote hear people speak by learning how to read their lips by touching them, and this is really not an everyday skill you can pick up. Like as I was reading this, I started like trying to put my hand to my own lips and seeing like how like how different it was. Like but it's so easy to get confused because like some. um, are different, but then the way your mouth is shaped to make them is the same, like, how would you tell the difference between, like, an M or an N, or maybe that's similar, but, um, stuff like that where it's, I just don't know how she did it, that's really amazing, um, and, yeah, she had this certain position where she was touching the mouth with her hands, and then, um, the throat of the speaker with her thumb, I think, and, yeah, she could just, she could read what they were saying, and, Yeah, like Helen was really was someone remarkable because no one with her disability, her level of disability had ever been so successful at learning what she was learning. So she really paved the road for what a person, even if they were deaf and blind, could be capable of, they could be just as capable uh, of communicating to other people. Um, And Yeah, so like the way she learned that was someone would speak and she would put her hand to their mouth and throat and then they would spell out the word for her in her hand, the corresponding word, and then she kind of pieced it together from there. So then in 1896, they went to the Cambridge School for Young Ladies and then in 1900, she gained admittance to Radcliffe College, which was the women's branch of Harvard at the time. Harvard was an all-male school. This was where she first became exposed to progressive ideas, especially there was an instructor called John Albert Macy that helped Keller Helen with her autobiography, and he exposed her to socialism. And just through the classes she was taking, she was sort of learning about different things, different ideas. And John also helped um, Anne take care of Helen. And John and Anne actually ended up falling in love. So that's John and Anne sullivan like not helen um and however Anne sullivan resisted his first proposal because she didn't want something like marriage to get between her and helen she was really loyal and loved helen but eventually they married in 1905 and she was 39 which was quite old back then i think even today that would be considered old and especially like 1905 like I mean, women were being married off in their teen years, I'm pretty sure, so, um, and he was 11 years younger than her, but, I mean, Anne is so remarkable, like, he was definitely a lucky guy, and at 24, Helen graduated with honors and became the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree, and after graduation, she advocated for the deaf and blind, writing articles for newspapers about blindness, she became a prolific author, writing 12 books over her lifetime she also went on speaking tours with the aid of an interpreter usually Anne, and advocated for taking the blind and deaf out of insane asylums and into the proper care they needed um because obviously like that's how she got better it was not by going to an insane asylum where they were just kind of like sticking everyone in and mistreating them and so um about her speaking, uh, there are clips on YouTube of her speaking, so people can see for themselves, but it is really incredible, it just makes me so thankful that communication comes naturally, like when you grow up with sight and hearing, and she had to work so hard for it, and she could articulate some words better than others, and she, but she always had an interpreter, um, and she learned all of that just by like touching Anne's mouth and throat, and and directing her and helping her by... Um, talking to her through hand signals so um yeah it's it's interesting like you can you can tell um what she's saying but it's it's like it just makes you think like there is uh, like it, it is hard it is really really hard to learn when you don't know like when you don't grow up with um sight and not sight but I think like hearing most of all like the fact that that was such a detached world from her and she could only hear about it through like vibrations is like yeah, just I'm sure that was really difficult. And John, Anne, and Helen lived together. Um, they were either living together or Anne and Helen were on tour and they visited dozens of countries together over the course of Helen's lifetime. So unfortunately in nineteen thirty six Anne died of a blood clot in her heart and passed away with Helen holding her hand to the last moment. And a woman after that a woman named Polly Thompson, who had been housekeeping, stepped up as caregiver and she and Helen continued on with Helen's sort of speaking activities and stuff like that, and then when Polly died, um, a woman named Winnie Corballi, who had been Polly's nurse during her illness, then became Helen's companion, so she lived, she outlived a lot of her companions, and she lived until I think she was like 87 or something, but yeah, so I'm going to briefly talk about her love life now, because I thought this was interesting, um, in the context of like how people, that are like have disabilities or have illnesses are just not seen as like they're seen as childlike and innocent and they're not held as like mature people and people want to keep them sort of like oh this childlike innocent person is sick and like we have to help them it's not really like oh this is an adult person that has their own like desires and stuff like that and so um Yeah, so her family and Anne, Helen's family and Anne, were super productive of her. Like, there was a story about a handsome guy um, that was proctoring her exam at school, and her mother had him replaced, like... I don't think you need to worry about the dangers of a handsome guy with your blind daughter. Like, that's one thing you might not need to worry about. Um, and I think even in the way she's remembered, it's, like, always... So, like, what's interesting is actually the statue of her in the... There's a statue of her in the U.S. Capitol building, and that's how she's immortalized. And it's um, a statue of her with the water pump and her realizing, like, that, you know, like, revelatory moment. Um And so it's, like, not as, I'll talk about later, but, like, she's not, the way she's immortalized is as a child, literally. Like, it's not as a socialist activist. It's not as, like, the grown, mature woman that she became and the amazing things that she stood for. It was, like, just, oh, look at this girl. She, like, is, um, like, overcoming her deafness and blindness. Like, it's all all about her disability, basically. It's not really about, like, what she did beyond her disability, beyond overcoming her disability. So... Yeah, however, in 1916, this was just a short episode, but when Anne was ill, uh, a reporter, they, they got a reporter from the Boston Herald, um, was put in last minute as a substitute secretary um, to work for Helen, and he rapidly learned the hand signals, and they were able to communicate, and he would tell her the news through the hand signals, and they would talk about politics and stuff, and they fell in love and apparently she became secretly engaged to him and even tried to elope with him but it didn't work out um but yeah i thought that was just an interesting episode in her life that she wasn't just this like mm, like nun woman who didn't have like passionate emotions and like of love life and stuff like that so, yeah, she was on these speaking tours, raising money for organizations that assisted and advocated for the blind and deaf. And, of course, that was, like, widely respected and everyone liked that. Like, that part of her... um And then I'm going to talk about the part of her that has been forgotten and that she actually got pushback for in her own lifetime. And it's really funny because, like, the Helen Keller International website, which is, it looked like it was, like, the official website, they give a timeline of her event and it says nothing about the side of her that I'm about to talk about. It has, like, Helen Keller wins an Oscar for a documentary about her life and she wins the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Like, I'm sorry, but her impact cannot be measured in the long list of medals or awards she got. It's in the word that she spoke and the like the fact that she risked the huge platform that she have to say the things she did and take the stances that she did and it's those courageous things like it's not these stamps of approval from the government or from hollywood or something like that um yeah this is what i always think about short biographies that just like you you ask like oh talk about this person and the blurb is just like a long list of all the awards that someone has got like that's not a picture of anyone's life I think I'm not going to learn anything by like knowing all the awards that a person has gotten and like there have been amazing historical figures that never got any medals and amazing people that have and there have been arguable war criminals who have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize and then there are some great people that have gotten it like I just really don't see the correlation between actually impactful people and the people that get sort of like the stamp of approval from western backed or established organizations yeah but anyways like going on to what I think is the more interesting part of her is she was first of all she was a hardcore socialist so in 1909 she joined the socialist party so pretty early on and um oh yeah, there is one quote that I like. So in nineteen fifteen after learning about the Ludlow massacre, which I didn't even know about this massacre, it was where um Rock John D. Rockefeller's private army killed coal miners and their wives and children in a labor confrontation in Colorado, which that just sounds wild. Like I need to read up more on that. And Keller denounced him as a quote monster of capitalism. So Um, so I also talked about how she was exposed to these ideas through John and it was also deeply tied to the other advocacy work that she was doing she always saw her socialism as a natural extension of her advocacy for um, the other more mainstream work that she was doing because she had learned that deafness and blindness were actually correlated with poverty and even when I heard this I was like what what do you mean like isn't that just natural like your sickness or something like that but actually the horrible industrial working conditions that people were in were leading to deafness and blindness because people were just in horrible chemical and um like dangerous machinery conditions and she said i have visited sweatshop factory sweatshops factories crowded slums if i could not see it i could smell it and i thought that was so powerful because like whenever i am compelled by a like a social justice movement it's always because I see something it's always because like I see or I hear but usually because like visually you see like a child working at a factory you know like there's those famous images like um of child labor and stuff like that that or like the girl just recently like the girl that was starving in Yemen like people see those photos and that's how they connect to a social justice issue but the fact that she did that without even seeing it like she just knew in her heart from like a rational perspective I think is really amazing and um she had always thought that blindness and deafness were these unavoidable environmental uh, unfortunate things but actually they were preventable in many cases so she was really passionate about that and about improving worker conditions and she even said of her own life that she quote, owed her success partly to the advantages of my birth and environment. I have learned that the power to rise is not within the reach of everyone, end quote, which is so touching because obviously she was born into a socioeconomic advantage, but she was denied the advantages of sight and hearing. So it really means a lot coming from someone like her to say that, like, it's not within the power of anyone. Like, I got the better end of the stick in some way because I feel like it's so easy if you're in her position to be like, oh my god, I was like denied, I'm so unlucky, Um, but she was saying like, no, I'm actually lucky because I may have these disabilities, but I was able to get the care that I needed, and stuff like that, and she wrote books on socialism, she wrote for socialist newsletters, and she supported Eugene V. Debs in his bid for presidency, and I I did a show on him actually back in the fall with Chrissy, Um, really interesting guy, he won like i think it was like his peak he won like three to five percent or something of the presidential vote which is really a lot for the third party and in 1912 she joined and wrote for the International Workers Union which was a famous union based in Chicago and so she was really vocal and open about her socialist activism she wrote entire books on this and this did not go over well with some people it was it's like funny but it's also so infuriating like some people who had praised her for overcoming her disabilities before and they're like oh look at this girl she's like deaf and blind but she's able to communicate Um, she's so intelligent and stuff like that and now they turned around and published articles blaming her political views on like a lack of development and other ableist bs and after a while the American Foundation for the Blind which she had fundraised for like her entire life and given millions of dollars to they withdrew their support saying she was quote an embarrassment like I have no words because (laughs) she brought so much awareness to their organization and the work they're doing and that's just really cowardly of them to step away from that because, like, she was trying to, like, genuinely help blindness, not just sort of do it under the wing of, like, what people thought was okay to talk about. Anyways, and also apparently the FBI kept tabs on her throughout her adult life um, as she developed more progressive views. So she was also, um, besides her worker socialism she was a suffragist uh, writing in 1916 women have discovered that they cannot rely on men's chivalry to get them give them justice which i really like that quote and this is kind of going off topic but so i've thought about this for a while because the first time i learned about feminism was emma watson's speech he for she and i was like oh that's so great like feminism i identify with that i I know what it is but looking back on it and i know like emma watson might not have these views anymore like i'm not pinpointing her or anything but um the thing is like i remember reading an article about when he for she first came out saying like it's great that she's bringing awareness to feminism but it's also kind of problematic like literally the name is he for she like oh let's get all these like white knights to fight for our rights which is a terrible that sounds like a slogan but it's like really not what feminism is about like you like Helen Keller said you can't rely on men's chivalry to get your rights rights are there you have to take them you have to fight for them um it's not like like he for she is just mm, so problematic if you think about it and I remember reading critique of Emma Watson and I was like a hardcore Emma Watson fan and I was like oh my god like how could you criticize her she's like she's doing so much like she graduated from brown like she's not like other celebrities she's like a smart girl she's like a smart celebrity that is like making the world a better place like how could you say that about her but if I think about it now those critiques were actually really well founded and the he for she campaign should not be a thing like it's it's really not it's really problematic in many ways like I was thinking about this, and I was like, well, would it, I want it to be, like, he and she for he and she, because, like, both men and women should be taking part in feminist activism, and both men and women will benefit from feminism, so, like, mm, yeah, but I, obviously that's not as catchy as, like, he for she, but, yeah, it's just, like, I don't, mm, yeah, I have a lot to say on that, but anyways, um, so she wrote for women's articles, Helen Keller, she wrote for women's articles and stuff like that, and She also donated and wrote for the NAACP which was a new and controversial organization and especially if you think about like her parents were confederate people like they were her dad was literally fought against the right of black people to be like considered as human basically like he fought on the confederate side and her mom was like a southern confederate daughter as well so like she was a critical thinker like she did not follow what her parents thought necessarily and I I didn't see anything on like how her relationship with her parents was over the years but um again like there's not even much stuff on her stances in general on like NAACP and stuff like that because people only remember her as this like blind and deaf girl anyways um so civil rights and racial equality were really radical at the time and that did obviously not keep That obviously did not keep Helen away. She was also a pacifist. And um, yeah, there's this great quote quote from a speech she made at a rally sponsored by the Women's Peace Party. And quote, Congress is not preparing to defend the people of the U.S. It is planning to protect the capital of American speculators and investors. Incidentally, this preparation will benefit the manufacturers of munitions and war machines. Strike against war, for without you, no battles can be fought. Strike against manufacturing, shrapnel, and gas bombs, and all other tools of murder. Strike against preparedness, that means death and misery, to millions of human beings. Be not dumb, obedient slaves in an army of destruction. Be heroes in an army of construction end quote, and she opposed Wilson very vigorously for his involvement in World War One, and she also visited Japan several times and was just really against nuclear war, and she was well-received in Japan, too, with around two million Japanese coming out to see her, um, and yeah other cool stuff so she was also i had no idea she was a founding member of the aclu in 1920 that is so cool and and that was really tied into like her activism about um people like protesters have to be protected and she was also friends with mark twain and charlie chaplin and i was kind of reading about like how mark twain has sort of been whitewashed by history as well which he would be like an interesting episode too um And at the end of her life, she suffered from a series of strokes and remained at home. She died in her sleep on June 1st, 1968, at 87 years old, so very old. And she was only a couple weeks away from her 88th birthday, apparently. And she is buried in the National Cathedral Cemetery in D.C. next to her companions Ann Sullivan and Polly Thompson. So yeah, she's a lot more than a girl who overcame her blindness and deafness. She was a radical activist in her own right, and she did a lot more than just, like, this is the thing, is like, people were impressed most, and what she's most been remembered for is just being, like, a normal person. Like, oh, despite her blindness and deafness, she was able to operate as a normal person and, like, give inspirational speaking tours about being a normal person but she wasn't a normal person at all she was like highly intelligent and a critical thinker and ahead of her time and an activist and she was like on the edge of the overtone window in a sense like um and that part of her that is so much more than her just overcoming her disabilities is is really erased because that's not as convenient of a story for some people and this is a excerpt from um an article on it's called is review that i really liked and it said quote um keller fought her entire life against such bigoted notions and distortions of her life story she constantly combated attempts to render her a hollow icon nonetheless such images regarding keller and disability continue to be reinforced everywhere this can be found in primary school curricula i can vouch for that that was definitely true that's like you know like picture books about like her and the water pump that's all i knew about it (laughs) in um in the vast majority of children's books on keller Helen Keller and in most adult biographies of her more often than not her radical politics are simply ignored but even when they are acknowledged it is usually to discount them end quote oh and um like I said when she was like when she was saying like help the blind people were like oh how sweet what a smart accomplished girl she is and then when she was like also help the blind by improving working conditions and making sure there isn't a systematic danger of of exposing people to conditions that make them disabled and blind and deaf. People were like, oh, well, you know, she's deaf and blind. What does she know? Like, this is like her just radicalism. And they were like, Ann Sullivan was like just tempering her radicalism. When Ann Sullivan was a socialist as well, it's like, please stop. Like, this is who she was. You can't just suddenly discount her opinions because they're, like, inconvenient to you, Um, and she's not, like, a second-class citizen, and she really fought against that her entire life. It's, like, even the people that you think are uplifting her are actually putting her down, because they only want her as so long as she fits into their narrative. Yes, so this was, like, a really good dodo topic, because I feel like it really is not really well known. I, at least I can say I did not know as much as I did before I researched for this episode and like how much she has been just utilized by other people and how much I was a part of that like I only knew about you know the water pump story and like just the rest of her years were just kind of a blur of like she fundraised for the blind association like she did so much more than that and so next week's topic will be actually a friend of Helen Keller's, because um, I was reading like all the cool people that she was friends with, she was like in these really lefty progressive circles, and um, the next, so next week's topic will be Upton Uptown, 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 Upton I don't know Sinclair he wrote The Jungle and that's how I know about him through school he we read about like him writing The Jungle and he brought attention to the horrible conditions of the meatpacking industry um and this is interesting because the meat and animal agricultural industry has just gotten far far worse since he wrote about it I think like factory farming is very much a thing more today than at any other time I think so yeah tune in next week for that thank you